Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast begins a special one-week, five-part series on the Monaco Memo. It's one of the most significant memos around the Department of Justice's thoughts on best practices, compliance, and actions you need to take during and after an enforcement action. We began our week with James Kukios, who gave us his thoughts on the Monaco Memo from his perspective. Tuesday, we'll have Vin DiCiani. On Wednesday, my Radical Compliance co-host, Matt Kelly, joins me to take a deep dive into the weeds of the Monaco Memo. On Thursday, Hughes Hubbard partner, Laura Perkins, will visit with us. And then we'll conclude the week by having the award-winning Everything Compliance Gang take a look at it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with the Everything Compliance Gang. We're going to get into this about Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco's speech and the accompanying memo that adds to the DOJ guidance regarding corporate compliance programs, really, and just this idea of what, how the DOJ will assess corporate criminal enforcement policies. There's some shift, as we can see from this memo. And I think you actually learn a little more about this even from the speech and the text of the speech as well. So for those who aren't aware, there obviously are various procedures, not necessarily binding law, but the procedures that the DOJ follows when they are assessing what penalty to mete out or how to handle companies when faced with, particularly here, FCPA or other potential corporate criminal violations. So we're in this space of, all right, how well is our compliance program doing? Have you self-disclosed? These are the topics that these policies address. And as we've seen with this new policy, the guidance from the DOJ is that they are not going to pull any punches. And this is the next step in what I think has been an increasing temperature increase from the DOJ in a number of different areas, but all of it surrounding this idea of we want to hold individuals accountable. That is priority one, anyone who's breaking the law, but specifically let send the individuals in, send the executives in who are making these decisions that lead to potential FCPA violations. Also in this memo is this idea of what it looks like to comply and to have voluntarily self-disclosed. 
such that you might get some cooperation credit from the agency. And so the one I wanted to focus on, and I know there are others on this call who will get into some of the other items that are included in this speech, in this memorandum, including things like monitorship, executive comp plan, things like that. But I want to talk about this concept of the timeliness of disclosures and apologies in advance that this is going to veer into my rant, maybe, because I have some opinions about this one. And just honestly, I have opinions about this in general. We've seen this steady inching of the agency toward pressuring companies to voluntarily self-disclose. We saw that years ago with the pilot program, this idea of this inherent potential carrot of a declination if you come in hat in hand and tell us what went wrong and tell us maybe that you fixed it. This, I think, step that we saw this last week, again, this came out on September 15th, so not too long ago. I think this next step is crossing the line, in my opinion. The demand of timeliness is really such that the language of the memo says, to receive full cooperation credit, corporations must produce on a timely basis, and the word timely is underlined, all relevant non-privileged facts and evidence about individual misconduct that prosecutors have the opportunity to effectively investigate and seek criminal charges against culpable individuals. So again, the timeliness component of this is housed under the individual investigations, individual accountability section, which is interesting. But the reason I think this is problematic is if we can just zoom out to the 30,000 foot level, we are talking about the Department of Justice. This is an agency that is prosecuting people for criminal violations. And as we all recall from our time in law school or otherwise, just watching Law and Order, that requires that the government to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the fact of their compliance is this sort of gentleman's agreement that we're not going to make you do that. We'll split the work. We'll have you guys come in and have us. You tell me what it is you guys went, did wrong if I'm the DOJ prosecutor, and then I'll decide whether or not there's enough to make my case. That's not how it's even supposed to go from, from Jump Street. Let's start there. The government hasn't proven the case. They're taking the work of at this point, the defendant to say what went wrong. So the idea that we are now demanding that gets sped up and the idea of speediness comes out more in the speech than in the memo. They do underlined in her speeches, we need to do more and move faster. In individual prosecution, speed is of the essence. That's a standalone paragraph, that one sentence in this speech. So this idea that pressure move faster so we can figure out who we want to prosecute criminally for these potential FCPA violations, anti-bribery problems regarding bribery abroad, things like that. So again, I have a problem with, again, we aren't in a phase where the government is mounting a case that they are proving beyond a reasonable doubt that you have violated the law because there are criminal penalties that attach. So that's the first sort of structural issue that compliance is always dancing around. This idea of we're not really there, let's just make this easier for everyone and get a better resolution because we came in and did some of your job for you. We did an internal investigation. Here's what we found. We fired these sort of rogue employees that maybe were causing the headache for everyone. So let's just move forward. The timeliness thing seems to suggest that the DOJ wants to step in before that point. So before maybe even a full internal investigation has been done by the defense counsel, and basically hand over the people who DOJ will then individually prosecute. So to me, this suggests a violation of the process in the sense that the defense counsel here 
this isn't this hunky dory we're all grasping hands with the DOJ and singing kumbaya, making sure this all gets remediated. Sure, that's what we keep talking about. But at the end of the day, this is an adversarial process. And the role of the attorneys is to advocate for their clients. And so I, I think the idea that we want to essentially deputize corporate counsel to turn over individuals immediately without maybe even having the time to suss out what's really going on, how deep does this go. These investigations take months, if not years. Everyone at the Department of Justice likely knows that because they've either been on the defense side before or have been in these FCPA matters before. They know that this <laughs> takes a lot of time. And so the idea that we are now demanding of companies to we're narking out the C-suite to see who is in charge or who is culpable for this. To me, it feels and it's impugning on an attorney-client privilege on the role of defense counsel to to be strategic about when they voluntarily self-disclose. There's a lot in her speech about taking the time and gaming when you'd self-disclose or not. And I would just push back on that and say, of course, that's what's happening. We are advocates for our clients. And there is going to be some real discussion about what we disclose, when we disclose, if we don't have all the facts. I think this, this speediness is a problem with the structure of what they're doing. And I worry that this might result in people not taking the cooperation credit and saying, I, we cannot, we'll run that risk of not cooperating because the alternative could be very damning. And like I said, with criminal penalties attached, these are people going to jail with some of these individual prosecutions. And I think it's risky. So it's a rant. My apologies. Oh, I will also say, because Matt's not here and he was going to talk about compliance officer certification. When I last had to give a talk about that, the idea that this comes at the same time, so to me, I know when I was having this conversation with Lauren Koopman about it, she was like, no, those things are totally separate. I'm like, but it feels ironic to me that we're going after individuals as hard as we can. And you're now making compliance officers certify this. We really are supposed to read those two siloed as separate. It seems to me like the compliance officers should be getting nervous and everyone should be getting nervous about this. And so I do wonder if they've, they've gone too far and it might have a backlash of people not taking the risk of self-disclosure given this. So anyway, that's my rant. I'll pause there because I'm sure there are people who want to jump in and push back at, at my uber defense lawyer stance on this one. <laughs> Mr. Armstrong, do you have a question or comment for Ms. Woody? I do think you're right about the self-reporting. I think there's a really difficult balance here. I'm still I'm still halfway through, as Tom knows, the ENRC judgment, which is this huge tome. I think I'm up to page 214, so wish me luck. I've still got to get to page 386 before I can give you any formal opinion on it. But, but one of the things that case tells us in the public domain, and I've certainly seen it in the private domain, is it's really challenging to get a corporation to self-report. And in some respects, and any corporation needs some sort of certainty as to what the process will look like. And I'm not saying they need an easy ride, and I'm not saying prosecutors should give them an easy ride. But if we look at the fact that on both sides of the pond, there have been no super stellar victories for prosecutors. And if, when you self-report, you're expected to do more, 
then that equilibrium gets really challenging. You're going to get many senior management in corporations, I think, are going to think, well, hang on, the chances of us getting caught are less than they were, let's say, 10 years ago. And the things we're going to have to deliver to get a deal are more than they were 10 years ago. And when both things are moving, then your worry is that it's prosecutors closing the door to self-reporting. I think that's overdramatic. Mr. Marks, do you have a question or comment for Karen? Yes, and it talks about what she was talking about with regards to self-reporting and the like. But I am, I am taking this all in and thinking about this a little bit differently. And I think it all depends on what kind of matter it is. That's first thing, first of all. First of all. Second thing is, with regards to self-reporting, my bigger fear when doing an investigation and whether to voluntarily disclose or not disclose or self-report or not self-report, consciously or unconsciously, is what do they know or what don't I know that they know? And are they going to come for me? And if they come for me and I don't go to them, then what happens? Mm-hmm. I don't want troops showing up on my doorsteps with gold badges. And then all of a sudden I go, oh, darn, we should have done something. In the world that we're living in with more transparency, and what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about the financial institutions monitoring transactions more closely now with suspicious activity reports and all types of CTRs and things like that. I'm wondering where that information is now going, how they're sifting through it, considering that they're getting a lot better at that. And if they realize that something bad is going on and that something bad is going on, I know that, Jonathan, you were talking about this, what do we do? But I think those things need to come into play. In addition, I also think that was something that was very cleverly included in the memo there. It it builds off the Yates memo, obviously. But I think something that's very clever in the memo there is that they started talking about past bad behavior by individual and by the company. And I know they put sort of these markers on there from a timeline perspective, but if there's not organizational justice being being carried out in the organization and they're letting this behavior perpetuate in any regard, and there's either some direct or indirect relationship between the individuals that were supposed to be accountable for this or not, I think that throws a different monkey wrench into the scenario here as to whether the organization and the individuals are going to get, obviously the individuals are probably going to be more targeted, but from a corporate perspective, it certainly plays a different role there. And I'm really interested in your thoughts on that because there are a lot of investigations that are not disclosed. And I'm wondering if the DOJ goes in there and starts ripping through board minutes and finds out that there were investigations and things that never manifested themselves to a higher level, are they going to look at those things as well? Because I don't think it's what has made a DPA or an NPA or whatever. I think they're going to start to look at the full landscape When we talk about the compliance program, I think the compliance program includes evaluation of those bad behaviors. Was there a root cause done? I don't think there's any coincidence with the fact that this came out with EO certifications. I also don't think there's any coincidence that they're placing greater emphasis on the compliance program now, specifically in light of the data that came out with the U.S. federal sentencing guidelines saying that 89% of organizations didn't have... I don't know whether they used adequate or whatever compliance programs that got basically pinned for those particular set of circumstances. So 
I'm a conspiracy theorist by nature. I thought when Sarbanes-Oxley came out, it was a shot across the bow, building on the FCPA from an internal controls perspective. And then as that sort of manifested itself and we've gotten where we are, now all of a sudden Gensler comes out in the beginning of the year and talks about maybe revamping SOX. Now you have these things going on. And then you have this whole thing now with tying in compliance. And now, okay, we're going back to accountability again because Sally, I think, did a good job in outlining that in her memo. But you got to remember there were prior memos, too, that talked about individual accountability. You also have what we've all talked about, which are these care mark cases where we talk about board oversight and individuals responsible. So I think there's a confluence of toxic sewage coming together. And I think it's about time that these organizations woke up. And if I'm sitting in the DOJ right now, I think they're in a pretty good spot because I think they have better data. I think there's been enough warning. I think there's been enough news out there where people should be watching this, understanding it, synthesizing it, and saying to themselves in their own board meetings, hey, is this something that we should take a look at from our organization or not? It's all been out. It's all been laid out there. And so I'm just curious as to your comments there based on my little diatribe. Okay. I have a couple comments off the just off the bat on this one. First is, I do agree. I think what we'll see from this is again, just my maybe crystal ball. I think the corollary sort of consequence here is an unbelievable power given to whistleblowers. Because to your point, if the government doesn't know, I'm not maybe thinking I'm going to go in if I'm going to get in trouble for not having gone in before. If you're already on your back foot as a corporate counsel, thinking about, oh gosh, do we self-disclose? Are we too late? Are we not? The fact that the whistleblowers are able to blow the whole thing open, and even maybe with the bounty program and attendant money for that, I think whistleblowers now have a lot of power after this. The other thought I had about what you were saying, and I agree that there are a thousand other consequences, obviously board liability on this, I think through Caremark might still be tricky because I think most people are hopefully aware of this and there's someone on the board sort of thinking about this. But I actually thought, I think your thought about the fact that they're really doubling down on corporate recidivism here. And this is something Matt Kelly talked about a while ago, but I think is an interesting point, which is find me a company that hasn't maybe had some run-in with the DOJ or something like this. And so what incentivizes that company to turn around and self-disclose? Now, it's one of those things like you get one ding, you're not going to turn, like you're going to you're gonna hide it maybe the next, second time because you're already going in. We're going to get a recidivism like trouble damage or something, whatever, however they're going to play that out. And so I do think this idea that like the irony here might be that you are pushing back from this, like I say, collegial vibe that we're all going to be in this together and have a compliance program and work together and figure this out. You might have some pushback of companies being like, you know what? Nope. Come knock on my door and prove it because I'm done. I'm done playing ball. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever actually see that. I never saw that in the 10 years I was practicing, even though I always hoped someone would be like, do you, can you make the case? I don't know if they always can. But this, I feel like, is making the stakes so much higher that we might see some of that, especially for someone, a company that would be already dinged as a recidivist. I don't know what their incentive is. Yeah, and I'll just make one last comment. I go back to Tom's sort of mantra 10, 12 years ago with document. But more importantly, I think it goes back to even further back to that. I, and I forget what year it was, but the Seaboard memo talks about when you recognize something that's going wrong, you better start to fix it at that point in time. You can't wait. I forget the four factors off the top of my head, but the policing, I think, is one. I can't remember the other three. But anyway, long story short is 
If I walk in and I had an issue before and I remediated and that same thing came back in a different flavor, that's one thing. But you, my, my whole thing, even with when Sarbanes-Oxley came out and people say that they remediated controls, and we've all had this conversation collectively amongst ourselves. And even if you don't have a remediation plan and you don't document that remediation plan and you're not able to show someone exactly what you did, including organizational justice with regards to disciplining employees and what that discipline looks like, including, in effect, incentive compensation, which means it may be clawback, it may be some other type of thing for some individual. I think you're in a deeper level of toxicity than you are if you don't. And I think it's, I think, again, when you look at all of this and you bundle it all together, it's, look, we started this in 77. We came out with something in 2022, in, 2000, in 2002. You implemented it in 2004. We had Dodd-Frank. We have all these other things along the way. We have these guidance memos that were issued. We've given you enough runway and enough warning that you need to have your proverbial stuff together. And if you don't, we're going to, we're going to crush you. And I think they're in a really good spot now. So yes, you can play the game where, hi, we're here. And guess what? You know, and you could say, guess what? It's like, you go back to what's the movie clear and present danger. You don't have one of these, do you Jack? The get out of jail free card, but your get out of jail free card in my mind in all of this is showing that you have a good governance process in place, yeah. showing that you have a robust risk management program in place that's not a set it and forget it exercise, showing your compliance program. But more importantly, in all of that is when you do remediation or you do change things, how is, where is that documented? And at the end of this, is there organi- or is there some type of organizational justice put forth on these individuals or these bad actors? And if you can't show that at a minimum, let it, I think you don't have much protection there. You just don't. Yeah, I hear that. My point is simply that when that carrot becomes too hard to attain, it's not doing the job. And so you might just yeah. say, all right, show me the stick then. That was all I meant. But I think you're right. There is, there, people should know this. The stick isn't maybe an inappropriate solution to your point. Like you should have known this. You guys should have all seen this coming. So anyway, I, we, I've monopolized too much of your time. I'm going to, I'm passing back to Tom. No, I think it's a great conversation. <laughs> It is. It is. And I'm going to pick up on it when I have a few remarks. But before we get to that, Mr. Marks, what's on your mind? Tom, you asked me to talk about investigations. So we'll meander our way into the Monaco memo again and investigations, which layers itself in the memo accordingly. But again, the whole investigation process, I think, really comes under under fire now. And that really starts when, what are these investigation triggers? And I know, Karen, you talked about the whistleblower. Do you have a whistleblower program? And and how is that being worked? And is it consistent? And do you have a process related to that? When you're, alle- when you're doing triage of an allegation, is that consistent? How are you, what are you looking at when it comes to these particular allegations that are coming through? Are you treating them the same way? And what's the timeline for all of this as well? Are you acting on, the, on these things quickly? I set up investigations. I have a five-step approach, five pillars that make up the investigation puzzle. One is investigation triggers. Two is allegation triage. Three is planning. Four is investigations. And the five is the remediation process, which we'll get into in a second. But I think that if the DOJ comes in and they start looking, and you don't have something like this where you actually go through and address all these specific things, including should it be an internal investigation versus an independent investigation? How is this treated? Once you get to the senior level and senior levels implicated or a board members implicated, 
you got to get it out of the hands of the internal and you have to do an independent investigation. People don't understand that even today. When I lecture, Karen, not in the classroom, but outside at this point, and I talk about the difference between an independent and an internal investigation, and you'll hear my rant later about this because Tom was there to witness it live and in charge. But last week, a lot of people don't know the difference between an internal and independent investigation. They think they're the same. They're not. They're absolutely not. And they need to be treated accordingly. Again, some of this goes back to your own organizational awareness. Internal audit can't carry an investigation all the way through when there's senior management and there's board members involved. They just can't. Because I think that a lot of things come into play there. One is independence and two is their level of skill and capability. Some may have it. Most of them don't, in my humble opinion. When you go through the investigation process, how are things treated? It talks about, we talk about actually in today's day's data, one of Jonathan's favorite topics, the other Jonathan, the better Jonathan on the call. We talk about devices and are we looking at devices and communications and do you have control over all those things? There's a whole bunch of things that keep coming out here. But again, th those messages were sent based on things that happened in the past. And so they're, I think they're just rounding out some of the things that they're seeing that are more pervasive issues when they bring out this stuff in the memo. And then bad actors, how are we, these custodians are reviewing these custodians? What are we doing? How are we analyzing these things? What was done in the interview process? Who was conducting the interviews? I think all of that is absolutely fair game if someone's going to look at your process and say, this was something that we believe that we can have some comfort on. And then at the end, from a remediation perspective, which is the sort of the fifth pillar, discipline. Are we disciplining these actors? How we conducted root cause? Are we using that feedback, feed feedback to enhance our risk assessment or fine tune or tweak our risk assessment process? Have we looked at that from a training perspective? Is our training right? Maybe it's not. Maybe we should be training on different things based on the feedback. And all these types of things. And I think that whole piece of this is something that really has not been discussed for a while. But I always ask when I come in, do you have a fraud policy? Do you have an investigation policy? And the answer is usually no. They're not very difficult to put together. But it is, again, something I think that if a regulatory body is going to come in, they're going to start poking around. Like I think they probably could start poking around. I'm, that's certainly something I'm asking for. It's certainly, and again, I'm going to start to say, it's not only great, oh, here's my training. What does that mean? How is this derived? They're really going to start to dig down. They're going to start to do their own root cause on your own process. And if you're not prepared for that, I think, again, I think you there's it raises the level of risk on your side. If you feel confident that your compliance program provides, what is what did they say, reasonable, have some reasonable assurance or what was the phraseology that Polite used, which really hasn't been defined yet, provides some reasonable assurance or whatever for the overall organization. If you feel confident in that, you have these processes in place and you've done all these things, that's great. I think it's one of those things where, again, you might want to take take some risk and maybe not disclose on some of these things. I don't know. But if you don't, and it's a game of what do they know, which we've all been in those discussions, what do you think they know? Is it possible that this one went to the SEC or the DOJ? I don't know that I want to roll the... I'm not a gambler by nature, but I'm not so sure that I would even play that ticket at all. But I do think from an investigation perspective, I do think it's time that organizations go back and take a look and make sure that they have all the requisite pillars in there and that they're consistent and it's being applied appropriately across across the board. Jonathan, Karen raised a really interesting question and it ties into something I wanted to raise with you. I've heard you talk and write about your five-step process. I have put that into my compliance handbook as a guide to think through the, in, the process all the way from the initial report through triage, 
through moving it, elevating it within the corporation to the investigation, to the remediation. And I have man, or I've tried to communicate as strongly as I can. Each step has to be documented. And you set this process up before the report comes in so that you're not scrambling. And my question is now, do you, Jonathan Marks, the forensic investigator, or myself, Tom Fox, or Jonathan Armstrong, the lawyer involved, do we have to document our thought process, our attorney work product, around what, when and how we disclose, because if we, in consultation with our client, which is attorney-client privilege, make the decision to or not to self-disclose, will that then be evaluated? So number one, do I need to document my decision on whether or not to self-disclose, the timeliness of that self-disclosure? And then two, does any of that potentially violate the attorney-client privilege. I, I think you raise a good point, but the one thing I'll bring out here is we don't step in the shoes of management ever, so we don't make management decisions. It's not my job as a forensic investigator to determine the guilt or innocence of someone. That's that's up to the judge or the jury, and we clearly state that in our reports. But I think whether to disclose or not to disclose, again, I think that's a management decision and a board decision. That's not a decision for the forensic investigators. I would throw caution out there that talks about if you're going to issue some type of report that you better have the proper disclaimers in there. Because again, our investigations are facts and evidence based. That's it. If you're out there making judgments about certain things or certain individuals and you include that in your report, I think that's a huge mistake. As a better practice today, we've also bifurcated our remediation suggestions into two separate documents. So we have our investigation document and then we have our remediation documents. So they're in two separate documents. We do reference in our investigation report sometimes that we have made suggestions for remediation to management and to the board, if appropriate, but we break those out. I think there's some chess game that, that has to be played here a little bit too as you're going through and you're, and you're thinking about those things. You ask a great question or several questions with regards to this, but I think at the end of the if I'm part of those conversations, whether to disclose or not disclose, I'm purely there as a non-voting member or, if you will, to management, just providing my professional guidance and opinions and just trying to poke holes in whatever logic process that they come up with. But at the end of the day, that's not my decision. That's not my firm's decision. And it shouldn't nowhere in anything that we write or put put out there should it should we talk about that stuff. I think that's just opening the profession up for for problems. And so that that would be my that would be my thought there. I don't know if I hit on your question specifically, but if I didn't, maybe you can rephrase it and I can give you some more commentary. Karen, I was going to ask you, did that really encapsulate or encompass the attorney-client privilege waiver concerns you have, or is it something else? I think, yeah, you're, we're... We're saying the same thing, which is, I think you set it up, Tom, with this idea. That is a strategy decision. And I just, I can't, to me, I can't emphasize enough that as corporate defense attorneys here, considering whether to self-disclose or not is a strategic advocacy-laden decision that is defending your client because no one's going to court. Like this is when you're luring at this stage. I think when I talk about this to students, it's this idea of the first call that when they have a call and they say, we need to look through your documents. The first fight you have is over what the number of terms are that you're going to run across terabytes of data. And that in itself is an advocacy effort to say, we're going to cut this down. We're going to try to keep them a little bit further away. Like this isn't all just, like I say, 
full transparency, go along to get along thing. Like I still back up to this is someone who is across the table from us, who is has the ability to put the C-suite people in prison or drastically change the nature of this company through criminal sanction. This isn't just a like, it's to your point, Jonathan, I think you're right, that they have a lot of power and I find that unsettling. And so the idea that they would get involved and maybe strategy decisions, discussions about voluntary disclosure that I do think is in the realm of decision-making between an attorney and the client. So I, so the answer is yes. I think you, can, you got to what we were discussing, but I think there's some major issues that this teases out. Yeah. And I don't disagree at all. I think there's those are great points, but I think it goes back to, again, if you're sitting there and you're assessing your compliance program or you're assessing where you are as an organization with regards to overall risk management, and that you have a lumpy program that is not where it probably should be for whatever reason, I think that really needs to be taken into consideration here. Because if you're going to go up against someone who's sitting on the other end of the table, who's got endless resources, doesn't care how much money you spend on this whole thing, they're just looking for some answers. That is a dangerous situation to be in. It just is. It's like any fight. Any mm-hmm. If you're in a dispute with anyone, usually the person who has endless resources on the other side, they have a different strategy than you do. They may just want to ride you out until you break. And I've seen the DOJ do that before, by the way. Wouldn't be the first time, but I agree with you. That's a perfect segue to monitors. <laughs> it is a perfect segue to monitors. But if you're going to talk about monitors, why don't you talk about board advisors too? Because I also think that those could play a key role here. But so, before we go into that, can I just say one thing? I think as an external lawyer, this this becomes more problematical because you just have to be clear who your client is. Yeah. Are you doing an invest internal investigation or are you doing an investigation for government as a proxy? And that is really problematical because obviously different people, you might interview people who are suspected of wrongdoing. You have to be transparent with them. How can you tr- be transparent as an external lawyer if you don't really know who your client is? And we're in an where we've talked about this on this podcast before. I guess I've not looked at this statistically, but prosecutors on both sides of the Atlantic are probably losing more cases against individuals than they're winning. And the reason certainly that they're losing in the main in the UK is because the prosecutors haven't followed proper process. We've had a director of the SFO who's having side meetings the court has found, to the prejudice of individuals in criminal trials. You can't have that sort of underhand behavior and investigation by proxy and expect to get a subsequent prosecution through the jury. So this lack of clarity might also be self-defeating for the prosecutor. If the aim is, as a general rule in the US, we'll get the corporation to settle and will prosecute the individuals, then you're tethering your hands in those prosecutions against individuals if you don't structure the investigation in a proper and transparent way. And if individuals can claim that they've been duped or misled into giving evidence to support an internal investigation. So the whole thing is utterly fraught with difficulty. And just, Tom... To quickly answer the other question you asked about documentation and a lawyer's duty to document, as I said, I'm midway through the ENRC judgment, but there is an answer at least to that question, a paragraph 
926 for the Judgment Geeks, which said that Mr. Gerard's failure to make notes where appropriate in an investigation is so basic and so legion here that there is no alternative but to find that he was committing a reckless breach of duty in this regard. So certainly the judge in the ENRC case is saying that there's an obligation on lawyers not only to make decisions, not only to walk clients through their decisions, but also to document those decisions and why they were. Jonathan, as to your point about who is the client, federal district court judges have raised that same concern in some individual prosecutions. We have had one instance where a corporate uh, officer was criminally charged with destruction of evidence, federally charged, I should say, with destruction of evidence on a federal criminal investigation where she destroyed or allegedly ripped up documents on the way to the internal investigation by outside counsel. Now, that indictment was later dropped, but we've got that on record. And I have wondered more than once out loud if I'm a doing, I'm outside counsel, I'm performing an internal investigation, do I have to now give a Miranda warning if I've self-disclosed and the information I develop could be sent to the Department of Justice for use in a criminal prosecution or, I guess you would say, under caution? But I think you're absolutely spot on, and those are unanswered questions that someone is going to have to deal with at some point. I wanted to talk about monitors. There are three parts to the Monaco memo, and I once again say that quickly three times, on monitors. Number one, a discussion about factors prosecutors should use in determining whether or not a monitor is appropriate. Two is the selection of monitors, and three is the oversight of monitors. I want to focus on the first part, the factors that prosecutors have used, because I think it's a pretty significant change, and I'm going to purloin Karen's comments, see if I wrote them down correctly. The DOJ is not pulling its punches, and it's definitely increasing the temperature on what's going on. Under the prior administration, in the form of the Benchkowski memo, there were two questions that a prosecutor had to basically ask. At the time of resolution, had the company implemented an effective compliance program? And number two, had that program been tested? Those were brought forward during the first part of the Biden administration, but now that has significantly changed. So we've still got those two questions, which are questions two and three, but the number one question, and I'm going to have to assume it's the most important because it's number one, much like I think about the First Amendment, is did you self-disclose? Now, what does self-disclosure have to do with the need for a monitorship? I'm going to leave that question to the distinguished panel. But then it goes on to look at Questions two and three deal with, have you put an effective compliance program in and have you tested it? But then it goes to the heart of the actions which led to the criminal conduct or the criminal conduct itself. Was it long-lasting? Was it pervasive? Was it facilitated by senior management? Was there an exploitation of inadequate controls or the compliance system? Was there active participation of the compliance function or a failure of compliance personnel to respond to red flags? Did the company fail to take adequate investigative or remedial steps? Was the corporation's risk profile, had it changed and there was not an update in the risk profile? Or is the company under another type of regulatory scheme or in a regulated industry? Or is it involved in business sectors 
which are prone to high risk. So we've got the two former categories, did you fix it and did you test your fixing? But now we've got, did you self-disclose? How bad was the conduct? How high up did it go? Have you changed your structures? Have you done lots of things or, or rather it's conduct that occurred at the time of the incident? That seems to me to be inconsistent with what a monitor is there to do, which is to make sure you don't do it again, test what you have in place and report on that testing. We're looking at different things. The positive or the flip side to that list of factors to me, though, is that a company now knows what it needs to do. It needs to look at all of those and it needs to evaluate its conduct in light of those factors. And I think that this could be a very enlightening list of factors that companies could use in a proactive manner to test their compliance program. I think this goes to what Karen said as the heat's turned up. I really think the DOJ's put a lot more pressure on corporations. And I think this section here both changes fairly dramatically the assessment of whether monitorship is appropriate made by prosecutors, but also can give a list of factors and specific facts that companies need to look at on a proactive basis. I'm going to take some questions if anybody has them or comments at this point. Karen, what do you have for us? Yeah, I find that interesting to that list, especially with the what I was talking about, the timeliness of self-disclosure in the same breath as remediation. Because I don't know that we can do those things the way they want those together. In fact, there's a line from her speech that, I mean, is shocking to me. Maybe I'm, again, overreacting this, but the line says, if a cooperating company discovers hot documents or evidence, its first reaction should be to notify the prosecutors. In what universe would that happen? I just have this, if I'm sitting there with your contract attorneys finding hot docs, I'm going to turn them to the government for just this, this. And so the idea that you I just find it interesting that you are also required to have remediated, figure that out, maybe also fired those people or whatever. All these things can't happen at the same time. And they are important strategic adversarial decisions that I just don't think they can have their cake and eat it too on, on these, even just that list alone, as you point out, is impossible to do all at the same time. If self-disclosure and the timeliness of self-disclosure means immediate turning over of documents, I don't know how you then could have remediated. Even the factors don't all line up for me. So that's the end of my rant on that one. Mr. Barks. I almost think when she said that, and I read the same thing and shook my head probably like you, I almost thought that she was coming from one vantage point was that a grand jury subpoena had already been issued and you didn't even know that it was coming. If you get a grand jury subpoena, again, I'm not a lawyer, but the lawyers can certainly comment here. But when you get a grand jury subpoena and you have to respond you know, generally there's some agreement as to what information is being turned over at that point. So I almost thought if I put my if I put my investigators hat on and I plug myself in a situation that I was in recently in dealing with a grand jury subpoena, it almost appeared to me that she was coming from that lens and that lens alone. I think she probably is kicking herself today that she actually said what she said. Because I think there's other, to your point, there's probably other aspects of this. Like when you're doing an internal investigation and you or an independent investigation, and there are a difference, I just made that clear. When you come up with these hot docs, what do you do with them? Our first response is never, oh, let's call the SEC or the DOJ and let them, let's say, hey, look, this is what we found. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to seek to understand the context of all those 
and perform a full, thorough, and appropriate investigation before we make any type of comment to anyone or assess whether we're going to disclose or not disclose. So I think she's probably kicking herself, but I read that and I said, I almost believe that she's thinking about if we're, if we come first and we issue a grand jury subpoena and you're replying back to us, this is what you should be doing. But she did not clarify that in her speech. So next I'd like to turn to the question posed by our colleague, Barry Vitao. Thanks for joining us, Barry, and you pose an excellent question, which was, or is rather, in the context of corporate compliance programs and what information the Department of Justice communicated to us about those programs. They referenced the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document, or rather the original 2019 formulation, and it's updated in 2020, And they added a couple of refinements, and I can't say they're new because we've heard them before. But the first one is around compensation. We've always talked about incentives to do business ethically and in compliance. The DOJ re-emphasized that. But the one that, that really was a bit of a different twist was on clawbacks. Clawbacks have been around for a while. I'm going to point to one example where we saw them in another case. But the DOJ wants to see clawbacks on executives or rather individuals who were involved in bribery and corruption. I have lots of questions about this. Matt Kelly, who's not here to defend himself, thinks that they may be leading towards some sort of dollar-for-dollar credit if a company engages in clawbacks. I'm not quite sure how that will work in the amount of fines and penalties under the U.S. sentencing guidelines or corporate enforcement policy. But to claw back, that's a civil remedy. And for a company to engage in that, they have to have a contractual right to do that. Can't claw back salary because somebody did something wrong. You have to have the contractual right to do that. And most of us don't have contracts that have that requirement in that. I think executives in the C-suite and boards may have that. But you have to, if the unless the person agrees to it, you have to go to court to enforce it or you have to go to an arbitrator to enforce it. So I don't know if a company is going to receive credit for trying to enforce clawbacks. The president of CBS fought his attempts at clawbacks, as did the CEO of of McDonald's. We have seen that in one FCPA case, although it was completely unrelated to the enforcement action in Goldman Sachs. A couple of hundred million dollars was clawed back from senior executives, including the current CEO of Goldman Sachs. Now, that money was paid back voluntarily, and it was, once again, not a part of the FCPA or greater anti-corruption settlement across the globe, but we do have that one model. Clawbacks potentially could put the fear of God in executives, and that might be another factor, but companies are going to need to look at this. They're going to have to bring in their compensation experts. They're going to have to look at the contracts, and they're going to have to put these provisions in contracts. The second part of the cooperation. Let me just say, do we have any comments on that at this point? Karen? I always have a comment, but I agree. Last rant, I think I talked about declinations with disgorgement, and the remedy of disgorgement is maybe not one that the DOJ has because of, this, as you point out, civil, the process of that. They can have a punitive, they can fines and these things, but certainly in, in light of a declination. That is just an NPA and call it an NPA. It's an agreement and you part of the agreements you pay us back. So this is an interesting one, especially with the third party sort of idea that you're clawing that that has to be even in the contract for the executive. 
fascinating. And that's governed by civil law. I think that's a fascinating take, Tom. So I don't really have a comment. I just, my mind is still thinking through all that because there's a lot there. Mr. Marks. I think, I'm not 100% positive, so someone's going to have to fact check me here, but from a governance perspective, back in, I don't know whether it's 2005, six or seven, right around that time period, but AT&T, Dell, The Gap, I recall, all instituted clawback rules in their contracts with the executives in order to improve corporate governance. And I think from collecting some of the proxy data over the years that many of the organizations do have some type of clawback provision in there. What they are, I'm not 100% certain, but I think it's interesting. I also think it might be interesting now, again, when I talk about organizational justice, if in fact you are disciplining folks, whether they're actually executing on the terms and conditions that they have in those contracts and agreements with those executives. If that might have to be a little bit more transparent today than, uh, than before, just because of the things that we're talking about. But it's interesting to me that some companies have them and some companies don't. There is a second part to the information around effectiveness of corporate compliance programs, and it relates to third-party apps and personal devices and third-party apps around messaging. This seems to me that the department is very irritated with not necessarily companies, but individuals using their own private phones or phones that companies aren't aware of or aren't monitoring and or third-party apps that don't save communications. And I think this is certainly broader than the FCPA. Banks, for instance, are paying hundreds of millions of dollars in fines for allowing this to happen during the pandemic. It is fine for the, certainly for the DOJ to say that. The problem I have, or the issue I have rather, is that it's saying to the companies, oh, you figure it out. And you figure it out to our satisfaction. Now, the memo did say Dagmonico has instructed the department to come up with some rules, regulations, or policies around this, and it will be inputted into an updated evaluation of corporate compliance programs. But at this point, she's put the onus on companies. And so that means if any of us are advising companies, we need to tell them we've got to figure this out. We've got to write a protocol and we've got to document that protocol and hope that protocol will satisfy the department if we get in one of these situations. The, I think Mr. Armstrong's eyebrows are going to blow up as he thinks about the implications of GDPR around this. And that's another part of the department's memo we didn't even get into, which is privacy laws in other countries. But Jonathan, uh, maybe I could start with you. How do you see this impacting your clients in the EU and England and your advice you might give them? I think it, it truly is challenging, isn't it? You can't save data for a rainy day. You can't squirrel it away. I've talked before when we talked on this topic about I have an oar in my loft at home and the boat long since died that the oar belonged to. I've used that oar once in 25 years when my daughter was aged six and wanted to dress as a Florence, Grace Darling, a lifeboat rescue hero. And there's no justifiable reason for me to keep that or that paddle in my loft for 25 years against another fancy dress campaign coming up. And it's the same with data. We squirrel data away in our lofts and we have no justification for it. And this is almost like a mandatory squirreling away of data. It's not going to work under GDPR. 
And I also question whether it's actually in anybody's interests to have mass data grabs. Obviously, a folk, I'm not talking here about a focused look at people's emails. Data is often the perpetual witness to wrongdoing. In the UK, we've had serious cases and amusing or semi-amusing cases. The fight of Wayne Rooney's wife, for example, and cell phones that go overboard on, on fishing trips. We've had loads of examples of people trying to alter the data that they've got to suit themselves. I'm not talking about that. People who deliberately destroy data that's relevant to an investigation or litigation deserve consequences. But I know in, in 2016, I interviewed the director of the SFO at a conference. And he told me then that he had two petabytes of data that he'd acquired in investigations. So cases like Rolls-Royce, where part of the settlement is you give us a whole load of data and we can sweat that. So he had two petabytes of data. Obviously, everybody watching knows what a petabyte is. But for those who don't, that's eight times the volume of data that the Library of Congress has acquired from 1800 to 2011. So imagine the Library of Congress in 2011, multiply it by eight, and that's the amount of data that the Serious Fraud Office had acquired in recent investigations. And so I then said to him, and what do you intend to do with it? And paraphrasing, he said, I don't know. I've got a big computer. I can't recruit the staff to run it. I can't, on government salary, hire the people to investigate that data. And he said, I'm going to look at a scheme to bring students in as part of their university degree to help me sweat the data. That, that, isn't, that isn't an answer. So the difficulty is that finding the right data in investigations is often like finding a needle in a haystack. This bit of the memo, all it does is it acquires more haystacks. And that's a difficulty for government as well as for corporations. There's a cost involved in acquiring the haystack. It might not be lawful to enlarge the haystack because of GDPR. And your chances of finding a needle in a bigger haystack are less than your chances of finding a needle in the average size haystack. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this five-part podcast series taking a deep dive into the Monica Doctrine as announced by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco in her speech. We've also taken a look at speeches by a couple of other DOJ ERS interpreting the Monaco Doctrine and Monaco Memo. I've written a five-part blog post series on this that you can check out on the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog for a deeper dive. And finally, if you'd like a white paper on the Monaco memo, shoot me an email at tfox at tfoxlaw.com and I'll send you my white paper on the Monaco Doctrine. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is an award-winning podcast, and it's produced by the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.